Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Good morning. This is Peter Lewis welcoming you to my podcast, Money Talk, for Tuesday, the 15th of August. You can find this podcast on Substack, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Just search for Peter Lewis Money Talk. That's also my page on Facebook and Instagram. And thank you for making this program one of the most listened to financial podcasts in Hong Kong and Singapore. This podcast is sponsored by Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore and offers online financial services to 30 million customers across 10 countries. In today's business and finance headlines, shares of distressed mainland property developer Country Garden dropped to a new record low in Hong Kong after trading was halted in 10 of its onshore bonds. The private home builder warned in an exchange filing late on Thursday of a net loss of 6.2 billion to 7.6 billion US dollars in the first half. And on Monday, Country Garden said it's soliciting some bondholders' feedback on a proposal to extend payment of a yuan note due September the 2nd. One of China's largest private wealth managers is triggering fresh anxiety about the health of the country's shadow banking industry after missing payments on multiple high-yield products. Three firms said they'd failed to receive payments on products issued by companies linked to Zhongjin Enterprise Group, which has about 1 trillion yuan in assets under management. That's about 140 billion US dollars. Tesla announced Monday that it's cut prices in China for its Model Y long-range and performance versions starting on August the 14th. The electric vehicle manufacturer dropped the starting prices of both models by 14,000 yuan. That's about 1,900 US dollars. It's the first cut since the scrapping of a pledge from Tesla and 15 Chinese car makers to avoid what was described as abnormal pricing. And data from China on national retail sales, industrial output and fixed asset investment is due for release this morning. The data will be closely watched for signs of how demand is faring, given that numbers released last week shows the country's economy has fallen into deflation. Retail sales growth is expected to slow to 2.8% year-on-year from 3.1% in June. Fixed asset investment is forecast to come in at 3.6% year-on-year for the seven months to July. That's 0.2 percentage points weaker than in the year to June. On today's Money Talk, we're joined by Asian fund management industry consultant Stuart Altcroft, Will Denyer, US economist at Gavacal, and Tony Nash, founder of Complete Intelligence. U.S. stocks finished a choppy session higher on Monday, boosted by the tech sector. The S&P 500 added 0.6%, closing at 4,490. The Nasdaq gained 1.1%, ending the day at 13,788. Meanwhile, the Dow rebounded from earlier losses and advanced by 26 points, or 0.1%, to end at 35,308. NVIDIA closed 7.1% higher, rebounding from a sell-off of 8.5% last week. Shares got a boost after Morgan Stanley named NVIDIA the bank's top pick in a note ahead of the chipmaker's quarterly reports due on August the 23rd. The move helped chip stocks across the board to jump higher with the Vanex Semiconductor ETF up 3%, though that is still down more than 6% in August. The yield on the US 10-year Treasury notes rose to a new nine-month high climbing four basis points to 4.20% as traders increasingly bet US interest rates will need to stay higher for longer. The two-year yield rose for the fourth straight day, jumping eight basis points to 4.97%. And most Asian currencies sank on Monday while the dollar rose to a five-week high. The US dollar index climbed a third of a percent to 103.16%. 
The Japanese yen was among the worst hits by a stronger dollar, breaching 145 to the dollar for the first time since November 2022. It fell 0.4% to 145.5 against the greenback. And the Chinese yuan slipped a third of a percent to a six-week low of 7.2585 to the dollar in Shanghai, despite the PBOC trying to stem losses through a higher fixing. The Chinese currency has now tumbled about 5% this year, the worst performer in Asia after the yen, which is down 9.5% in 2023. Hong Kong shares were the worst performers in the Asia-Pacific region. The Hang Seng Index tumbled 302 points, or 1.6%, to 18,774. That's a three-week low, and at one stage the index was down almost 3%, with all 80 members of the Hang Seng trading lower. Country Garden led losses on the index, crashing more than 18% to a new record low. And the tech index closed 1.5% lower after slumping 3.5% earlier in the day. Shares rebounded from their lows on news that Country Garden is seeking to extend a a maturing bond for the first time. Mainland Chinese stocks were also in negative territory. The Shanghai Composite slid 0.3% to 3,178. Sadly, looks like the pain is going to continue for Chinese stocks this morning. Futures markets are pointing to a further decline for the Hang Seng of about 140 points at the open. That's around 0.8%. And you can get more details on the latest market movements in my daily newsletter at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Welcome our guests. We have, as always, on a Tuesday morning, Stuart Allcroft, Asian Fund Management Industry Consultant here in Hong Kong. Morning, Stuart. And good morning to you, Peter. And over in the US, Will Denya, who is US economist at Gavacal. Morning to you, Will. Morning, Peter. I'm actually uh, in Hong Kong. Oh, well, great. <laughs> it's hard to tell on Zoom, but uh, well, glad to see you here. And definitely over in the US, I know that because he told me earlier, is in Texas. Tony Nash, who is the founder of Complete Intelligence. Morning to you, Tony. Hi, Peter. Good afternoon. Good morning. Let's start with uh, China's property sector woes. Shares of distressed mainland property developer Country Garden dropped to a new record low in Hong Kong after trading was halted in 10 of its onshore bonds. Shares in the group closed over 18% lower at just 80 Hong Kong cents. On Friday, Country Garden, which was formerly China's largest developer by sales, saw its stock fall below a dollar for the first time since it was listed in Hong Kong back in 2007. The private home builder warned in an exchange filing of a net loss of 6.2 billion to 7.6 billion US dollars in the first half. And a week ago, it missed two coupon payments on $500 million of bonds, pushing it towards default unless it pays within a 30-day grace period. On Monday, Country Garden said it's soliciting some bondholders' feedback on a proposal to extend payment of a yuan note due September the 2nd. Stuart, can I ask you, I mean, when this property market crisis first started, we saw Evergrande run into trouble. Country Garden was one of those firms that was sort of seen as being one of the stronger um, developers um, and, and immune to some of the problems. But it appears not to be the case, does it? This, the, the property market slump seems to be enveloping everyone. Peter, your regular listeners to this program will know that um, I think we've we've talked about the property market in China very regularly and very negatively, and there is nothing really, really what we've seen over the last couple of days to change that view. The Chinese property market is in a dire way. 
Um, it is increasingly beginning to remind me of the dead parrot sketch from Monty Python, um, in that I think it won't last for too, for too much longer, and yet people will try to talk it up. The, um, the, the issue that is happening, I think, in, um, in China is that uh, the government have tried to talk it up, the property companies have tried to talk it up, um, even, even market analysts have tried to talk it up. It is a dead market. It is, mm. it is dying as we're watching it because it is over-indebted and, and the extent of the debt is so high, it's higher than any other market in the world and, um, and, and they can't pay it back. They can't pay it back because the property companies need to sell property and no one's buying. They have mm. got, they've got a vast amount of incomplete property as well and that also is causing a significant problem, and they're not completing the properties that they have got. They can't sell the properties that are complete. Um, how bad can it get? <laughs> not much worse, based on that, uh, that analysis. <laughs> I've not yeah, heard... I'm sorry, but I, I've, I've been negative about it. As you know, I've been very negative about it for quite a long time now. And, uh, and all that's happening is proving the reasons for being negative. Well, I know you focus on the on the US, but presumably this does have some global ramifications, doesn't it? I mean, if the uh, the property market, Stuart's now comparing it to the dead parrot nailed firmly to its perch, um, this is going to spread or have implications outside of China as well. I would have thought. Yeah, well, I mean, I think the you know any specific developers' problems probably don't affect the US, but the the broader uh, weakness in credit growth and in the developer property sector in China is, I think, a significant reason for the underwhelming recovery of China post-pandemic. And that, of course, does have global implications. Uh, you know, I, I myself thought uh, one of the risks this year for the inflation outlook, and I, I've been in the disinflation camp, uh, but one of my one of the risks to my outlook was what if you know, the China recovery is extremely strong and this puts upward pressure on oil and commodity prices. Um, and so far this year, the, the recovery out of China has been underwhelming. And I think part of that is is the big drag that they have from the, the property sector. So that, that would be the international ramifications that I would highlight. Mm, and, and maybe China's on the verge of exporting its deflation around the world. Yeah, exactly. So um, now that being said, we have, you know, I was mentioning oil prices, we have started to see oil prices uh, rise. Uh, I was actually in New Zealand recently. And while I haven't crunched the numbers on this, just anecdotal, which is always dangerous. Um, I was skiing uh, in the summer, as you can do in, in New Zealand, uh, their winter. And uh, I was shocked at how many uh, Chinese tourists were on the mountain. So uh, maybe, maybe, maybe some of the tourism is finally starting to to show up uh, in other parts of the world. But I think so far, it's it's definitely been slower to recover than than many people, myself included, expected. Mm. Tony, when you look at this from uh, from over there, how how does it look? I mean, it's uh, it, it looks like there's not really any any good options left, are there, for for the Chinese government here to try and sort this out? Yeah, that's that's the worry, Peter. I mean, look, Stuart gave a, a very enthusiastic outlook, which I think is great. But I think we, you know, we have to, as you say, we have to look at the stimulus of the Chinese government or how the Chinese government is going to address it. And, you know, this is one of those moments that feels, again, like almost like June 2015, where there could be intervention in the markets and it just falls flat. 
and then what happens after that and what happens after that and what happens after that, right? In the same environment where we have a CNY that is devaluing, um, it could be really not positive. Um, and so, you know, when you're talking about China exporting deflation, that's just kind of back to normal for us, right? We've mm -hmm. seen China exporting inflation for the past few years. But for 20, 30 years before that, they really exported deflation. And so, mm -hmm. you know, it's overcapacity, deflation, and so on, right? So are we back into that business as usual camp for China, especially with their FDI down and, and other things you know, are they going to have to go back into that old role of deflation exporter to be able to thrive? The difference is between now and then, though, is that um, China, I mean, its exports have been slumping, haven't they? So it, maybe it's not such, yeah. in such a strong position as it was back in 2015 to export anything around the world. Oh, without a doubt. China's in a very different place demographically. You also have a, a Japan that has a uh japanese yen that is very it, it's not what it was in 2012 right i mm -hmm. mean in 2012 jpy was at 76 or something now it's at 145 or something i mean it's you know you have a, a central bank in japan that's very competitive um and uh china's having to deal with that that's one of the factors that's coming into the calculation with cny Mm. Stuart, it looks like a lot of things are sort of coming together for China, the Chinese economy and not, not in a good way, as well as the, the property sector decline. We've got, well, the loan growth data that we saw uh, at the end of last week shows loans uh, slumping, new number of new loans slumping. We've got China slipping into deflation, exports and imports both slumping as well. Do you, do you get the feeling that we're at a crucial point now for, for the economy and the government really has to step up to the plate? Well, we are at a crucial point, yes, but we were at a crucial point previously too, and I think it continues to get more crucial. I don't think we're, I don't think we're at um, maximum velocity in that respect. Uh, I think there's still a little way to go because the government is, as you say, uh, making noises of saying it will support, but not actually taking the action to support. Uh, now, we did hear that the national team was starting to get involved. Uh, the national team is a group of fund managers that look after the assets of pension funds and, uh, and others within China, and they have, an, uh, have a tendency to buy securities in coordination with each other in large volume with a view to providing uh, a sort of positive outcome on the market. So the national team have been in the market the last week, buying a, a, a few, um, mainly ETFs apparently, um, which they see as a way in which to support the local market. But that hasn't really helped. Mm. The market doesn't seem to be taking the, the positive message that that is providing. Now, having said all that, there is a vast amount of money available in the market. The, 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 um, the mutual funds, the fund managers, pension funds, uh, trust funds um, are about um, sort of 20, 25 trillion US dollars equivalent in size. And then there's a, and, and of that, there is quite a large amount of it invested into money market funds, which are quite capable of being switched into equities or bonds at some point 
but that have not been. So there's a lot of money around, and that is, uh, again, another reason why the government is going to be desperate to support the market, because it can't afford to see um, massive losses being incurred, especially by the many individuals that are now invested in securities. Mm-hmm. China is is very heavily supported by wealthy individuals right around the market. So they they are um, going to need to see the government taking some action. That is that is why we're hearing about it. And it, it would appear that that has not yet started to occur. Mm. I, I want to get on to uh, some of these, uh, these debt woes in a moment. But Will, from an economic perspective, what do you do when the economy is is slumping because of people's lack of confidence. The consumer doesn't want to go out and spend. Businesses don't want to invest. People don't want to put money into the stock market. They certainly don't want to buy property at the moment, and particularly from even the biggest property developers. And and it's sort of like, you know, the the confidence has drained from the from the economy. How do you get out of that sort of spiral? Well, I mean, I think on a case-by-case basis, I would say you look at what is the problem. Um, and if the problem is in any sector, in an oversupply, we've had a boom uh, and there's a an adjustment that's underway, then, then you know, I don't think you necessarily want to stop that. You may want to, um, I mean, some policymakers will, will surely want to ease the transition and uh, not let it spill over into other sectors. But, you, you know, you don't want to make up problems. You know, if the market is trying to fix a problem of oversupply, you don't want to stand in the way of that or you'll just make it mm-hmm. worse. Um, if it's a problem of you know lack of investment, again, if that's because of oversupply, you don't want to stand in the way. If it's because excessive government regulation, uh, you want to dial that down. If it's because um, interest rates are too high, uh, if you know the central bank has set rates uh, at unnaturally high levels, you of course want to ease monetary policy. So I think it's a case by case basis, frankly. Tony, what, what would be your, your assessment? I mean, the, the, the issue in, um, in China is there's plenty of supply, but just a lack of demand through this, this confidence issue. What do you do? Should the government maybe do what Hong Kong has done, what the US has done in the past, and just go and put more money into consumers' pockets so that they can spend? Or is it the risk that they will just end up saving that and, and won't even spend that either? Oh, I think they did that in 2011, right, where they had the cars and other things. And so they've done that before. It was quite successful. But I, I don't necessarily think it would have the efficacy that it had 11, 12 years ago. So, you know, it's tough, Peter, because there are some real structural issues that are worse. The structural issues were bad in 2011, but they're worse now. So it's very, very difficult. Um, I think that... Uh, to f- nobody wants to fix the problem. Let's be honest. Nobody mm-hmm. wants to fix the structural problem. Okay, and- people want to kick the structural problem down the road. And we could say this for the U.S. and for the EU as well. So this isn't a, you know, it, it, that generally is not just a China problem. But China does not want to fix the problems. They just want to push the problems off. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, they're going to have to continue to va- devalue the currency. That's going to have to happen. They cannot spend more dollars on supporting their currency, right? So they're going to have to devalue their currency. We're uh, a few days away from having the weakest currency, weakest CNY since about 2007. And so this is a major issue uh, for the PBOC, for the import-export authorities, uh, and so on. So 
Um, there are some inevitabilities that, that the Chinese authorities are going to have to face. And those are the questions that I try to think about is, okay, they devalue CNY. What, what happens then? Right. There's a lot of U.S. dollar debt that's serviced from China and from Chinese companies overseas. Things become very, very difficult. So if we think that Country Garden uh, and Evergrande are difficult now, it could become even more difficult as we round out the, uh, 2023. And if the Chinese yuan does devalue um, further, um, that's bad news for investors, isn't it, into Chinese markets. It's bad news for Hong Kong companies because a lot of them uh, here um, earn their profits on, on the mainland. It, it's bad news all around for the markets here. Right. And this is why the PBSC will work very, very hard and the finance ministry will work very, very hard to uh, keep uh, the currency around where it is. It's It'll be very difficult to strengthen it from here. Mm. Um, I think what they're trying to do is stop it from devaluing more. Mm. Okay. Well, Stuart, tell me a bit more about um, a Zhongzhi Enterprise Group. This is one of China's largest private wealth managers. Um, they've missed reportedly payments on some multiple high-yield products. First of all, explain a little bit for people that are listening how how this works, because these private wealth managers are, are slightly unusual, aren't they, in terms of what they do in China? Yes, yeah, Um China's entire wealth management industry is very structured. Um, where, where you have the mutual funds, those are regulated by the CSRC. Um, but over the last five years, the banks have uh, opened up a whole raft of avenues to enable wealth management, which is a term that is slightly different in China to that that we use in Hong Kong. But wealth management has, has developed and then a number of organizations have been created by banks or others um, to create um, high yield, generally, fixed income bonds of a type um, that have been very attractive to end investors. And this has raised uh, somewhere in the order of $3 trillion in, in assets over that time. And the payout, of course, is, is what is is appealing to investors. They are buying high yield products. Mm. What these investors, are, uh, what, or what the what the bonds are actually invested in, could be anything, um, because there's not been a lot of information provided about that. And now what we're seeing is um, Zhongzhi uh, having defaulted on a couple of these, and that is just the, the the tip of the iceberg. And I suspect that there may be others where that occurs. Zhongzhi is one of the larger providers, but it isn't the only provider by any means. And if that is defaulting, then we could expect to see many other similar firms in, in the same situation, because they will all be investing in fairly similar assets, um, which could include Evergrande bonds, it could include Country Garden bonds, it could mm -hmm. include anything, because that information is, is often not being provided um, uh, in the analysis. I think this is the, um, again, it's, it's another um, concern and it will worry many people because it's been such a big industry over the last five years. Mm, and, and presumably this is linked to what's going on in the property market. The two aren't, uh, aren't distinct issues, are they? So No, no. Um, it's not just the property market, of course, but the property market is the, is the one that we see most clearly, the one that is, is being given the coverage at the moment. 
but there are other industries that have also uh, not done quite so well, and they are also being impacted. And these these um, wealth management products, which is the the general term, um, which were started in a, an unregulated fashion and have only recently begun to be regulated, um, could be invested in anything, mm. um, literally anything, commodities, um, real estate, whatever they want. Precisely, but but they were looking for higher yields. That was the point. Um, because the bank was paying next to nothing on deposits, and anything that was paying more than three or four percent was see- was deemed to be very attractive. Mm-hmm. Now, if they don't pay, then that that is in effect the default, and that is in effect taking away complete confidence from from those products in the market. Okay, well, thank you for that explanation. Let's move on to the U.S. Because Will, I want to get your thoughts on the on the U.S. economy. We had the uh, the Uh, Inflation data out last week, producer price inflation accelerated to 0.8% in July from 0.2% the previous month. That was marginally above uh, the sort of median forecast of economists. The CPI, that was up 3.2% year over year, up from the annual rate of 3% in June, but it was below economists' forecast. I can't really work out, uh, is it a Goldilocks economy or not? Oh, I wish I knew. Uh, no, that's that's the uh, trillion dollar question, uh, which I've spent a lot of the year debating with my <laughs> colleagues and with clients and, and discussing. Um, I do have a view on it. I'm not skirting the question, but obviously uh, nobody knows for sure. Um, on inflation, my read on it is, and you know, there may be some confirmation bias here because I've been in the di- disinflationary camp, but I do think uh, if you look at the data, um, and what I've been doing recently, because you, as you're aware, there's there's some pretty significant base effects when you're looking at year on year that that um, distort the picture, uh, and there's problems with looking at shorter periods of time as well. But um, looking across the the spectrum, um, I see lots of signs that disinflation is underway, has been underway, and that that inflation is actually coming back down toward the Fed's target, which you know six months ago, nine months ago, a lot of people thought was a pipe dream. Um, and my, my view has, has been that if the Fed is aggressive enough in its rate hikes and aggressive enough in its balance sheet contraction and money supply contraction, that eventually with the usual long and variable lags, this will bring down inflation combined with um, you know the market doing its job in this process of dealing with, with uh, capacity issues and supply chain issues. And so we've obviously seen since the pandemic, you know, you remember a year ago, year year and a half ago, um, you know, we were talking about order backlogs and supply chain constraints and all that. And those those have been worked out and if anything reversed where we have a lot less supply chain pressures on prices. Um, and part of that is just the market doing its job. And part of that is the Fed slowing activity. Now, granted, we haven't had a recession, which I still think is coming uh, but i could be wrong and indeed some of the growth data recently has been pretty encouraging um but they've slowed they've slowed demand um and with that money supply contraction i do think it's starting to and there's still a lot of the effect to be seen in in the months to come as due to the usual lags i think we are seeing a disinflationary process underway just to break it down a little bit if you look at inflation on an annualized basis over the last three months um and, and break it down into components. This is the CPI. Uh, 
the Fed's favorite core services X housing. Remember, that was the one that was quite high. And they said, you know, this is the one we've really got to get down. This is why we need to uh, soften the labor market, because that part of the CPI is is not really about oil prices. It's not really about global issues. It's about uh, wages. And we need to we need to slow that down. We just, um, that on the over the last three months has been at one point nine percent, basically mm-hmm. on the Fed's two percent target, if not a little bit below. So, you know, I think it's too soon for the Fed to hoist the mission accomplished banner uh, because that is just three months. But if that continues, you know, they've they've accomplished what they wanted to, at least in that part. You look at core goods, core goods are we're up 0.6 percent below target mm-hmm. total CPI. So I, I'm usually not a big fan of just looking at specific parts of CPI, because ultimately what matters is overall CPI total CPI 1.9 percent over the last three months. Now, the one air, the one big part of the CPI that has been well above target is shelter. It's rent. Mm-hmm. And that's been at that was at five point six percent. But that we have the leading indicators of that with the Zillow index, uh, which Powell's been talking about. And, and that shows that that number should come down in the, the coming months. So I do think we're seeing, you know, real disinflation. Mm. Tony, what, what are your thoughts? Do you think the Fed is close to, to victory now in, in its battle against uh, inflation? Um, I think they're getting closer. You know, I think if we look at things like Supercore, which is really what Supercore inflation, which is what, um, or sorry, Supercore CPI, which is really what I think a lot of the Fed guys are looking at. It did tick higher in July. Um, so I'm not, you know, opposing what Will has said, but I do think that we have, um, I don't think we're out of the woods in terms of inflation yet. Um, when we look at where oil prices have come over the past couple months and we look at uh, some of the other inflationary aspects of food and other things, it looks like and kind of feels like we will hit a slight bump, uh, say, in September, October. And this is something that I've talked about with people for quite a long time with one of my colleagues, Albert. And so, um, you know, is that a re-acceleration, a massive long-term re-acceleration? I don't necessarily think so, but I don't think the Fed, uh, as Will said, I don't think the Fed can kind of hoist the mission accomplished flag because, um, you know, the the economic response to COVID was crazy, um, in terms of getting more money out into markets. Um, we still have, if we look at the growth of money supply in the U.S., we still have $2.1 trillion excess dollars in the U.S. economy. And so it, it's not just interest rates that are, that are being used to control inflation. We have to look at the money supply and whether or not that supply mm-hmm. of money will be reined in through various means. And so the Fed has a number of tools, and even if we are hitting the numbers, they're going to continue to tighten over the coming years. Well, say over the coming eight, 18 months, not just with interest rates, but with uh, quantitative tightening. Money supply has been coming yeah. down quite rapidly in the US, hasn't it, since the beginning of the year? So presumably there's still more time, more room for that to work its way through? Oh, absolutely. There's, you know, we're, we're looking at contracting money supply into 2024. So I'd agree with all that. And if, if I might tie together a couple of the conversations we've had here uh, between the U.S. and China um, and, and 
Tony was talking earlier about currencies, and just to give a few comments on that, um, if you look at the money supplies of major countries uh, around the world, um, the U.S., as you just mentioned, has been contracting its money supply. Europe, uh, ECB has been contracting the money supply. The U.K. has been contracting its money supply. Um, Canada has been contracting its money supply. Then you move over to Asia and money supply. And here I'm using M1 just as a comparable uh, measure. Uh, Japan's money supply is still growing. Uh, China's money supply is still growing. And so, you know, that's that's a little bit backward looking. All of those things uh, on their own point to, you know, could explain some of the weakness we've seen in the yen and the weakness we've seen in the renminbi compared to the countries that are contracting their money supply. Now, question is, if we look forward, is that going to change? And for me, um, the, 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 the changes are likely to be bearish uh, for both China, I'm sorry, the renminbi, uh, and for the U.S. dollar for a slightly different reason. Uh, so the U.S. dollar is still significantly overvalued. Um, and so I do think that on the money supply issue, I agree with Tony that we're going to continue to see some more contraction in the money supply. However, I do think on the margin, the Fed, as inflation is coming down, and if it continues to come down toward its target, um, which is a big if, I agree, um, then they will, you know, on the margin, be hitting the pumping the brakes less aggressively, which uh, all else equal could take some of the wind out of the sails of the U.S. dollar. Um, add that to the overvaluation issue, and I think I think you have a negative outlook for the dollar. Look over to the renminbi. Um, they have a, a very different situation where it's the renminbi is not overvalued, uh, so that's not really the problem. However, uh, for all the reasons we've been discussing, the, the Chinese economy is still struggling, uh, and they have their inflation is still below target. Uh, so they have every incentive to keep monetary policy very loose, and that's a drag on the currency going forward. So that money supply growth, I would expect to continue in China and weigh on the currency. Uh, Japan's a little bit interesting, uh, where they, while their money supply has been growing, I think there is an argument for them to to be a little bit on the margin, less and less dovish going forward, because they actually are seeing above target inflation, which is something we haven't seen in Japan for, for a while. Um, so so the yen, I, I see a little bit more upside to. Uh, the one that really stands out for me, though, is the Swedish krona, where you have an undervalued currency like Japan, but you also have high inflation, even higher than in Japan. Uh, so there's an even stronger incentive for the central bank there to tighten. Um, Stuart, is that the final word to you? We've got about two minutes uh, uh, left. I mean, and the thing I'm wondering about is when does the Fed actually start cutting rates? They're widely expected to pause um, in September. Money markets are predicting they're going to pause again in November. Goldman Sachs is saying in a note it released over the weekend that they're expecting them to start cutting from the middle of next year, one cut every single quarter uh, for, for the, the following year. Do you think we're getting close to that point where we can start looking forward to interest rates coming off? No, I think we've still got a way to go. Um, I think the Fed is is too cautious in this respect. And I think that uh, Will's quite right. I don't think the Fed wants to cut rates this year. But I think that um, there are concerns, and, and, and this is what we've seen a few times, un uh, unemployment is too low in the United States. In other words, employment is too high, mm. and uh, the, it will be... 
another part of the Fed's um, calculation as to what happens with employment before it starts thinking about cutting rates. If employment continues to remain very high and therefore unemployment very low, then I think uh, it is unlikely that the Fed would cut rates in the, in the short term. Yes, it's possible to talk about what's going to happen in 12 months' time and say, yeah, well, quarter percent rate cuts then, but I think we're too, that's too far away in terms of, of most people's thinking these days, particularly when you see uh, quite other, quite big, other dramatic issues overpinning the market and, and mm. the geopolitical risks remain very high. Tony, in 30 seconds then, um, can we look forward to rate cuts from the Fed next year? Certainly not in the first half. If there are rate cuts next year, it would likely be in the second half because, as Stuart said, employment is still strong um, and it wouldn't really make a lot of sense for um, for the Fed to be tightening and loosening at the same time. Well, final 30 seconds to you then. When do we start looking forward to rate cuts? If we see softness in the labor market, if we see inflation expectations drop below two and if we see actual measured inflation uh, dropping below 2%, uh, all of which is likely the indications of a uh, brewing recession, then yes. And since I think there is actually a risk of that happening at any point, timing's hard. Uh, I, I do think there is a possibility. But I, the Fed's bias is, is for tightening. But if we do start to see a recession unfolding, they will they will cut. Okay, well, thank you very much. That was Will Denyer, who's US economist at Gavacal. You also heard Tony Nash, founder of Complete Intelligence and Asian fund management industry consultant Stuart Aldcroft. You're listening to Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Thank you for listening to Money Talk this morning. You can find more business and finance information from around Asia in my daily newsletter, which is at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. On tomorrow's programme, I'm joined by Enzio Von Fahl, Capital Preservation Specialist at Financial Shield. And with a view from Japan is Nick Smith, Japan Strategist at CLSA. Bye for now. Money Talk.